I want you to know I, I love your pastors. I love Kurt. Kurt is a man who is, uh, he's a warm-hearted man, isn't he? And he's medicine for my soul. I don't know Steve that long, but I kind of met you at a Zoom meeting, and if he be warm-hearted, you are sober-minded. Just the comments that you gave at that Zoom meeting, we, th- that was really good counsel for us, Pastor Steve. Really appreciate that. Then I would say even the deepest taproots I have is because I know him the longest. That would be Pastor Robert Elliott. If, if he be warm-hearted and he be sober-minded, you are lion-hearted, brother. And, and, and you don't know how frequently you have encouraged my heart just listening to you on the other end of the telephone line or hearing you preach a message or even hearing the way that you hosted that forum discussion when you talked about our being fallible failures as pastors, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables us to stand. So you've got good pastors out here in Southern California. I love these men. You ought to love them back. And then I bring to you warm greetings from Michigan, though I would say that's kind of a relative saying, because 48 hours ago in Michigan, it was negative two degrees, and I'm having an uneasy time with that door being open there, but I'll have to get used to that. It'll be okay. So 48 hours ago, I was not only, uh, I was in Michigan, but just welcome Trey among us. About 48 hours ago, you were in Florida, right? By the Keys, and he's come to San Diego. He looked up this church on the web, and he thought he'd come on a Friday night. So flock this man. Give him no rest. Let him know how friendly you are here in this congregation. And and our hope is that our coming together tonight, whether it be you from Florida, me from Michigan, or these dear people from Southern California, that it would be worth our while that we would sense the presence of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray his help tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you've brought us here. And we pray that we would be like those men on the road to Emmaus, that you would cause our hearts to burn within us by time the night ends. Please come and visit, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Please take your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. And just one verse I will read here. It says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. So encouragement, encourage one another, it says. That's going to be our theme. Think with me back January 23, 1936, Myrtle Kramer gave birth to her little boy named Jerry in Jordan, Montana. Jerry Kramer didn't stay little for long because Myrtle's darling eventually grew up to be six foot three, 245 pounds, and he played football for the University of Idaho. In 58, he was drafted into the professional ranks by the Green Bay Packers as an offensive lineman. He was a guard, and during Jerry Kramer's first year rookie season, Green Bay was the laughing stock of the league. They had one win, ten losses, and one tie, not the kind of success that either Jerry or his mom Myrtle had hoped for. And frankly, things got worse the following year. But then in 1959, embarrassed by their nightmare season, the Packers 
hired a new head coach who was Vince Lombardi, whose name has become quite popular over the years. And, and when the preseason summer workouts began, Kramer, the big insecure Montana country boy, wondered how he would fare under the new regime. So he was uptight and he was plagued with all kinds of self-doubt and he really made a bad first impression during the early practice field workouts. It all came to a head during one goal line scrimmage when Kramer, he couldn't seem to do anything right. He was jumping off sides. He was missing his assignments. He was getting late to his blocks. And all the while, the new coaching staff was just yelling at him and criticizing him. So Kramer was disoriented. He was suffocating with a sense of failure and was kind of on the verge of quitting football altogether right then and there. So defeated, Kramer crawled back to the locker room. And there he sat. Can you see him there in that locker room on the bench in front of his locker with his elbows on his knees, with his face in his hands, and he was just trying to decide whether to quit that day or wait till the end of the season. And then, with that scene in the locker room, in walked Vince Lombardi. And Lombardi did something that really would have made Myrtle, Kramer's mom, would have made her heart sing, because this future legend, Lombardi, this future Hall of Fame coach, after whom the Super Bowl trophy is actually now Named, he sized up the locker room drama and he walked over and he messed up Kramer's sweaty hair in front of that locker. And he said, Son, someday you're going to be one of the greatest football players of all time. And he walked out. And that was it. That was, that was it. But something happened. That, that word of encouragement transformed Jerry Kramer. The timid weakling became a heroic hulk of a man. Uh, that timely word, that, that locker room encouragement from Lombardi was a defining moment. And Kramer claims that from that day forward, that point on, he was a changed man. Lombardi's encouraging comment at a discouraging moment shot Kramer, athletically speaking, to football greatness. Kramer says that from that point on, he got up and he never turned back. He became a, a Green Bay starter, ended up anchoring the Packers' offensive line for years, dominating defensive foes with his Hulk-like strength. He's best known for throwing the block against six foot six Jethro Pugh of the Dallas Cowboys, manhandling him, paving the way for quarterback Bart Starr to score the winning touchdown to seal the 1967 World Championship game. And Kramer led his team to Pro Football Dynasty five league championships. And five times Kramer was voted to the All-Star team as an All-Pro offensive guard. And finally, some of you may know, just recently in 2018, Kramer was inducted with Lombardi eventually to the Hall of Fame, NFL football. And Kramer condensed all this down very well. He said this, there was just something about Lombardi that brought out the best that a man could give. And a big part of that something was Lombardi's timely words of encouragement. 
And that's what we want to focus in on, this theme of encouragement. And I want to bring, I think we have seven dimensions of encouragement that I want to lay before you. And just think with me now, first, how encouragement is like adrenaline. It's an analogy. Just just think with me on this. It's kind of a a vivid picture. A, A timid weakling transformed into a heroic hulk. Now, you might think that's just the stuff of Marvel comics and superhero novels and fictional stories, but that's really not true because that can really happen. People can chemically and physiologically undergo superhero-like transformations, and you know what can do it? Adrenaline. Adrenaline can do it. Think back with me, 2012. Lauren Kornacki, a a 22-year-old woman in Glen Allen, Virginia, lifted a portion of a BMW 525 off her father when the car toppled off a jack onto dad. And then 2006, Tom Boyle, a man from Tucson, Arizona, hoisted a, a Chevy Camaro off of a bicyclist who was screaming underneath the vehicle as he was bleeding lifting enormous things in a Hulk-like way can actually happen. And it can also happen that adrenaline can make someone fight against fierce foes. There was a woman named Lydia Angiu in 2006. She went toe-to-toe with a polar bear in northern Quebec. See, her boys were out on the skating rink in their backyard, and a bear came onto the skating rink, and Lydia tackled the bear. Now, now, how does something like this take place? Well, chemically and physiologically speaking, what happened in these cases was adrenaline. Adrenaline happened, making normal people into heroic hulks. We've experienced the adrenaline rush. You know what I'm talking about here. A physiologist writes, The release of adrenaline is rapid, seemingly instantaneous, so that we can respond according to fight-or-flight situations. You know what adrenaline can do? It can rapidly boost the heart rate. It can flood muscles with extra oxygenated blood for more forceful exertion. Nerves from the spinal cord running to our body's muscles are more easily able to recruit motor units Harnessing more of a muscle's potential strength, these motor units are the recruiters bringing about greater force that can be developed. That's what a physiologist says. It's called hysterical strength. That's what adrenaline can bring. The internal physiological drama is fascinating. When alarmed by a sudden emergency crisis, the human body can be transformed Again, another physiologist. Adrenaline raises heart rate, increases respiration, dilates pupils, slows down digestion, and probably most importantly, it allows muscles to contract extraordinarily. So bursts of adrenaline can boost our abilities far beyond what's normal. Senses of vision and hearing and touch are dramatically heightened. Thinking clarifies and is energized. Frames of mind can change from timidity and insecurity and self-doubt to courage and resolution and 
determination. We normally only use a small percentage of our strength capabilities, but that adrenaline rush can transform a timid weakling, just like Kramer, into kind of a heroic Hulk. Now, here's the point I'm working on regarding the wonder working of encouragement. I'm certainly not suggesting that encouragement actually biologically stimulates the hypothalamus and in turn explodes a, a little adrenaline rush propelling to excellent performance. But, but I certainly am claiming an analogy. It's an analogy, and that's what I want to work on. Encouragement is in many ways like adrenaline. And the thesis of what we want to work on this weekend, and you'll see it all throughout the Scriptures What adrenaline is able to do chemically and physiologically for the body, encouragement is able to do emotionally and psychologically for the soul. Because encouragement can actually transform a person's spirit. And wise people know it and tap into it. Just like Lombardi did in the case of his player, Kramer, people like Pastor Aaron and Pastor Steve and Pastor Robert and Pastor Mark will do it as their pastors for their people, as mommies for their children, as fathers, as supervisors in the workplace. Wise men know what encouragement can do and tap into that. That's what we want to work on. Encouragement is like adrenaline. Come on to our second main point here. And that is encouragement strengthens. It strengthens. The Apostle Paul, he he knew the exhilarating power of encouragement. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul prescribed that Christians frequently help each other in the running of the race of the Christian life so that we will give to each other a steady diet of encouragement. The Greek word that's used for encouragement throughout the New Testament is the word parakaleo, which means to encourage. It's in that passage that I read from 1 Thessalonians 5.11, where it says there, therefore encourage one another. There's that Greek word, parakaleo. Encourage one another. It means to, to edify, to build up, to strengthen one another just as you are doing. Now, Think of the context there, Uh, to urge with uplifting words, to cheer on in times of discouragement. Think of how there in 1 Thessalonians, the context is that a number of the members of the church there in Thessalonica had lost their lives to death. You can see that in 4.13 of 1 Thessalonians. Some had died since Paul had departed. And these church members were grieving and they were prone to despair. They were fearing that the loved one's deaths that occurred before Jesus' second coming, well, then does that death disqualify them from participating in the forever salvation that saints would enjoy at Christ's appearing? So it's into this really discouraging occasion that Paul injects these words of encouragement. In this context, look what Paul says there in 4 
15 through 17. This is great encouragement. The ultimate encouragement is found in looking to and seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and all the implications of that. And our time together will crescendo on Sunday morning worship where we will see that. But just look at the context here in 4, 15 through 17 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul says this, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. See, they thought those who had died would miss out on everything. No, 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 he says. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. And it's in that context he's saying, encourage one another as you are doing. So, so this is good news. It brings, could we say, joy-filled rapture to these people. They thought, we'll see our dead brothers and sisters again, and we'll forever bask with them in the Lord's presence. There's a commentator named J. Philip Arthur who says this in his commentary. He says, though the present seemed threatening, the future really couldn't look brighter. Paul was aware that his friends already appreciated how important it was to strengthen those who were feeling discouraged. So he says, let them go on from this good beginning and let them excel in the business of fortifying and building up brothers and sisters. That's why he says, continue to encourage one another and build each other up. So encouragement makes an impact. Just personally myself, I can remember some years ago as a pastor, I was slugging it out in uh, church life difficulties, and I found myself worn down and weary, and I was exhausted. I was like the heavyweight boxer who'd taken a right cross and was down on the canvas for the count. And then I got this email from a, a dear woman in the church, and the email just said this. It was short. Pastor, I thought you'd like to know that I was just talking with Sue, and she told me that after your sermon on Sunday night, her husband went home and said that after hearing your message, he had to spend some time alone with God. And he stayed in his bedroom alone for a long time and came out noticeably refreshed and changed. That was it. What? what? Three sentences. But it was adrenaline to me. It, it helped me to get up off the mat and fight again. It it had a striking effect on me. In fact, there's a man named George Adams. He says this, encouragement is oxygen for the soul. And it was adrenaline for me because encouragement strengthens. But, But come on with me, thirdly. Think how encouragement gladdens. It gladdens. The book of Proverbs is full of encouragement to be encouraging. It says in Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in the heart of a man weighs it down or causes depression. But it says, but a good word, a good word makes it glad. That word glad is the Hebrew word sameh. It's the same word used in 1 Samuel 11 when... There's this Israelite city of Jabesh Gilead, 
and it was being surrounded and threatened by this Gentile king, Nahash, who was bullying the people of Jabesh Gilead. Nahash had sent a message to the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead and had told them that the only way the citizens of the city could survive if they would agree to let him gouge out all of their right eyes. Now, that would weigh a heart down, wouldn't it, to be in that kind of a circumstance? But when the, the people, they received a, a good word, they received an encouraging one in that situation because the Israel had gotten a new king. It was Saul, and Saul had heard about the bully Nahash, and says Saul got angry about the threat, so he assembled an army of 60,000 Israelites, and they began marching toward the city of Jabesh Gilead. And then Saul sent a message ahead to those eye-twitching, fretting Jabesh Gileadites. And here's what the message said. Here's a good word, if ever there was one. The message said this, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh Gilead. And it says, and they were glad. There's that word again, that Hebrew word. They were sama. They were glad. Remember it said, anxiety in the heart of a man weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. You see, their anxieties were calmed and their hearts were revived merely by a, just, just a good word. A good word like adrenaline. It made them glad. It was an adrenaline shot to get a good word. You just think with me how, uh, well, I was just on the way to the building here tonight, and I was in the car with Carissa Arend, who went off to a university. Is that right, Kurt and Jen? I bet you're firstborn off to a university in a distant place, and I'm sure you're wondering, how is she doing? Is she in with the right people? Has she made connections? Is she lonely? Is she homesick? And then maybe, maybe someone from your church also had, a, had their child over at the same university, and, and they actually saw your daughter, and they called you up on the way back driving home on a Sunday night and saying, just wanted you to know, Kurt and Jen, that we saw Carissa at the cafeteria. And she was surrounded by four or five really nice girls. They, they go to a, a, a good navigator, John MacArthur-type Bible study. And there she stood right up and she, she hugged us and she's really doing well. Now, isn't it true, Jen, when you hear a word like that, that anxiety in the heart of a mom can weigh it down, but a good word makes it glad. You see... Just a good word, a word of encouragement can change everything. Gary Brady comments on this passage, and he says this, It has staggered me on occasions to find myself in a thunderous mood, only for it to be dispelled by a mere smile or pleasant word from someone. It's just one little word. That's it. Lombardi-like. It can change everything. So encouragement gladdens. But you know, encouragement also fattens. Yeah, that's not a typo. Encouragement <laughs> fattens. Think what it says there in Proverbs 15, 30. It says, The light of the eyes rejoice the heart, and a good word makes the bones fat. Literally, it says, NAS, puts fat on the bones. You see, encouragement fattens. Now, I know, I know, I know. 
today things that are fat seem unhealthy. But, but in Old Testament times, when poverty meant malnutrition, a little pudginess in someone, that meant prosperity. So, so amen, some says. <laughs> I'm not going to go further on that. That's a different series. We understand that financially and also emotionally, this is true. It's like when we're, when we're burdened with sorrow, we can lose our appetites, can't we? We'd even become gaunt-looking and lose significant weight. For instance, if a spouse dies, you say to the surviving spouse, you've got to eat something, right? Because there's that thinning out and there's that scrawniness So the idea of putting fat on the bones refers to a heart at peace and a heart that's full of joy. A good word can fatten the heart. Derek Kidner, you like Kidner's commentaries? I think Kidner really cuts to the heart of matters. He says this about this proverb 1530, that a good word puts fat in the bones. He he names this proverb simply tonic. In other words, a good word brings tonic. He writes this, The light of the eyes may perhaps refer to the radiant face of a friend. If so, the two lines of the proverb will be speaking of the heartwarming effect of a person's and facts, respectively, can bring putting fat on the bones. That's what encouragement can do. And you've ever seen those medical studies where you have cancer patients? And if a cancer patient hears an encouraging word like, your, your cancer numbers are down or some other kind of report, there's an inevitable boost in the overall condition of the patient. Positive feedback with a cancer patient gives a significant physiological boost. And that's why encouragement to cancer patients often brings a far better outcome than those who are chronically discouraged. For example, a few years ago, there was a man in our church, who was a political science major at Hope College in Holland. And he was a high flyer who had great hopes and great prospects, but once he graduated, he didn't have any job online. And it went from a week to two weeks to three weeks to a month, and he was really down for the count emotionally, weighed down. But then eventually the phone rang... And it stopped his pacing back and forth in the home. And the telephone person on the other line said, Congratulations, Matt. You've been accepted as a White House staff member in the George W. Bush administration. I mean, if there wasn't a day and night change by this good word, Matt was transformed from hopeless to Hercules. He was transformed from scrawny to strength merely by a good word, an encouraging word, adrenaline-like. It changed Matt. Encouragement then fattens. But it also, look, it sweetens. Encouragement sweetens. I just want you to see how it's really all throughout the Scripture. This isn't just Zig Ziglar, the power of positive thinking. The scriptures talk about these practical elements. Uh, It's sweet, and Solomon says this in 1624 of Proverbs. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health 
to the bones. And old George Lawson explains, words that convey proper counsels and consolations to persons in complexity and distress are pleasant and medicinal, like honey, like, like honey from a comb. They revive the drooping spirit and they strengthen the feeble knees. You know that account in 1 Samuel 14? Here is Jonathan fighting in the forest on a hot day and he's drained down, can barely lift up his spear anymore because he's hungry and he's malnutritioned. But then he sees that the limbs of the forest are hanging heavy with what? Honey. And he takes his staff and he sticks it into the comb. And it says he ate it. And it says his eyes brightened. He was strengthened. His strength renewed. See, that honey had the effect of encouragement had the effect of pleasant words. It brightens the eyes. When we get it, we are strengthened by the sweetness of it. It's reported that back in 1521 when Martin Luther was walking into the assembly room of the Diet of Worms that a noted military commander named George von Frunsberg touched him on the shoulder. And he said in his maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger-like accent, my little monk, thou hast today a march and a struggle to go through, such as neither I nor any of the great captains that I have seen in the most bloody of battles. But if thy cause be just, go forward in God's name, and he shall not forsake you. And this was sweet balm to Luther's trembling heart. It was an exhilarating word of encouragement for his fainting frame. It brightened his eyes. I know that he prayed and God brightened his eyes, but a brother giving him a timely word changed him from being a timid hermit to a theological hulk. Also, think of how encouragement enlivens. It enlivens. Solomon again in 1821 of the Proverbs. Listen to what Solomon says. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat of its fruit. I know we say sticks and bones, or sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's not really true. Words can pack the punch of a baseball bat. In fact, Ray Ortland commented on Proverbs 18.21, where it says, the tongue can kill, he says, literally, I've heard about a woman in L.A. who took her own life, and all she wrote in her suicide note was, they said. Because words can beat. He also, Ortland, goes on about how they have at their men's gathering what they call appreciation time, where men will get together maybe after a men's breakfast and say, you know, brother, I want you to know that last week when you came to me and did that or you came to me and said that, you really changed things for me. You really encouraged my heart. And, and that kind of encouraging one another has an electric effect. You ever hear of a guy named Larry Crabb? Larry Crabb used to write books about 
Christian counseling. And he tells how when he was young, he had this humiliating, stuttering problem. And in the ninth grade, he was elected as the president of his junior high student body. And the principal called him up in front of all the other students. And he started out by saying, I, Larry Crab from Plymouth Junior High. And it was such an embarrassing experience. He stuttered all the way through his speech, but he thought, certainly public speaking isn't for me. And Crab goes on to say that a while later, he felt compelled to stand up and lead at the congregational prayer meeting. And he remembers that by the time he stood up and had ventured into his prayer, he, he suffered all kinds of stage fright. And he, here's what he says. He says, I found my theology becoming confused at the point of heresy. I remember thanking the Father for hanging on the cross and praising Christ for triumphant, bringing the Spirit from the grave. And I was stuttering all throughout, and I finally thought of that word, amen, which he says is probably the true and only movement of the Spirit in my whole prayer. He says, then I sat down, I was just too embarrassed to look around, and I just solemnly vowed to myself, I'm never again going to speak aloud in front of a group. And his ministry aspirations really were dead at that point. And he kind of scrambled for the door, hoping to avoid anybody who might want to correct his terrible theology. And, and he writes what happened when an older man caught him by the elbow out in the lobby before he could exit. And he said this, Larry, there's one thing I want you to know. Whatever you do for the Lord, I'm behind you a thousand percent. And that's it. That's all that he said. And Crab says this, as I write these words, my eyes tear up because those were words of life to me. Those words had power. They, they reached deep into my being and my resolve to never again speak publish, publicly weakened intensely. And so he goes on to say that he has spoken to large crowds and the Lord used that timely word, Lombardi-like, in his life to change him from hermit to hulk as it was an adrenaline shot to his soul. Just, just the last point, I want you to consider how, okay, we think how it's nice to give encouragement. Just think of the holy obligation that's really present there. That encouragement is actually an obligation. Back in August of 2014, there was a nine-year-old American girl who was traveling on board a transatlantic United Airlines flight from Dublin, Ireland to Newark, New Jersey. And less than two hours into the flight, she became ill. She was suffering from an allergic reaction. Her face puffed up. She was showing symptoms of suffocation, anaphylactic shock, dizziness, labored breathing, swelling. The tongue and breathing passages were all crowding together. Things got desperate, and the medical professionals feared that there'd be a fatal outcome. But the airline crew had an EpiPen. Anybody know what an EpiPen is? Okay, an EpiPen. It's that emergency shot of adrenaline. Uh, the term EpiPen comes from the medicinal term epinephrine, where you stick it into the leg, and if you had a peanut or a bee sting, the adrenaline bursts in and 
Blood vessels constrict, blood pressure increases, smooth muscles relax in the lungs, reducing wheezing and improving breathing, and death is averted and health returns. Well, that's what this young girl experienced. And though the 169 passengers were inconvenienced because they had to head back across the Atlantic, still the girl survived. Praise God for the shot of adrenaline. But sadly, there was a girl about a year earlier in Dublin. Her name was Emma Sloan. She was on O'Connell Street. She had a allergic reaction to a nut sauce in a restaurant. Her mom didn't have the EpiPen in the purse, and the pharmacy wouldn't give her the EpiPen without the paperwork, and she died there on O'Connell Street. See, see, the point is, the point is, what's true in the physical realm is also true in the emotional, spiritual realm. And that is that people are vulnerable to the suffocation of extreme discouragement, and we are solemnly obligated to give them shots of encouragement when it's within our power to deliver. Because you think of what it says, about obligation now. That passage in Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. We have the power of life in our tongue. And when we're silent and we don't give the shot of adrenaline and encouragement, we have fallen short of our holy obligation as image bearers of the living God. Just think of the mutual obligation we have, especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It says in Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of son. You think about it. If you If you saw a child in a restaurant with a swollen face gasping for air and you had an EpiPen in your pocket, you wouldn't think of passing by without seeking to deliver the life-giving shot of adrenaline. But you know what? Some of us daily pass by our neighbors and dear ones and we habitually neglect to inject the encouragement we have within our power to deliver. Think about that. Think about that. It says in Proverbs 3.27, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is within your power to do so. Or think of James 4.17. That says, Therefore to him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So it's an obligation to give encouragement. Now you may say... Well, how do I know? How do I know if somebody needs encouragement? How can you identify that person? Uh, Truett Cathy, who established Chick-fil-A, he answers the question, how do you know? The person needs encouragement? He says that person is breathing. So you think of looking around in these green chairs and, and, and what's going on in this room. You see... In many ways, that's not news to us, is it? There are people sitting in this room right now who are gasping for air psychologically, feeling suffocated by discouragement, downcast by the disappointment of a bleak outlook on life. Maybe there's somebody here who who didn't get that job. 
or somebody here who feels they don't have a real friend in the world. Maybe someone here whose children's problems are like an elephant heavy weight on their chest. And I just say that because discouragement is it's, it's epidemic. It's all over here. People you wouldn't even suspect. You think of, uh, you know who Phil Riken is? Phil Riken is amazing. Well, I just preached through Proverbs a short while ago, or Ecclesiastes. Got a great commentary on Ecclesiastes. Phil Riken is now the president of Wheaton College. He was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church. He's an author. He's just a well-known giant of a Christian man. But he was once giving a chapel message to Wheaton College and the message was entitled, No One Knows the Troubles I've Seen. And you can see the, the chapel situation. It was in the, the fall, and here you had these students who came. There were freshmen who were sitting there who were so homesick. And then there were sophomores who were there who were overwhelmed academically. And there were juniors who were there who had no clue what their major was going to be and seniors who were there who had no idea what they do when they get out of college. There was epidemic discouragement in the room that fall semester. And Riken starts this way. He says, it was the spring semester of last academic year, and I was in trouble. He was talking about just a few months earlier. He says, over the course of long weeks that stretched into months, I fell deeper and deeper into discouragement until eventually I wondered whether I had the will to live. Now the students got their eyes as big as saucers. What, Riken? Is this giant of a Christian man? He says this, I didn't know if I had the will to live. I'm talking about me, not somebody else. I was in a downward spiral, and I said to myself, you know, I understand why people would kill themselves. And a few days later, I started to wonder if, you know, how I might kill myself. It wasn't the thought I wanted to have, but Satan was after me. He was tempting me. Things were moving in a bad direction. At that rate they were going, who knows how long it would be, for I was in real danger. And the students no doubt thought, really? Riken? Riken goes through the same kind of discouraging heart states that I go through? You, you, you know, Aaron? Kurt Aaron goes through those things? Who? Uh, Pastor Steve and, and Pastor Robert Elliott? Did they go? Yeah. These kinds of things. No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. I re- remember I was going through a really difficult season as a pastor in Holland about uh, oh six years ago, and I was, I was going to resign from the church because I just felt like I've been there so long, and my preaching had just become like a waterfall, and they didn't even listen to me anymore. I thought I'd take about five weeks off and went and visited other churches. And I came back, and I preached a sermon, and there was this woman who'd been in our church for many years. And she came to me in the back, and she came right up to me, and she took me by the hand. She got my full attention. She said, you know, Pastor Mark, it's fine when other pastors come and preach to us. But Pastor Mark, no one knows us like you do. And I'm so thankful to have you back in the pulpit. And that was it. 
That's all it was. But it was like adrenaline to me. It was Lombardi-like to me. I, I think if she wouldn't have given that word, I wasn't sitting in front of a locker, but she kind of messed up my hair. And, and she changed the course of my life with that word of encouragement. All I'm saying, what about you? What about you? What, life and death are in the power of the tongue. And again, this, this isn't just something that's, that's uh, modern, new age psychologizing of the Bible. You think of how it says in Luke 6.31, just as you want men to do to you, you also should likewise do to them. What could a word do for you? Spurgeon. Spurgeon isn't a psychologist from the 2020s. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher from London, wrote this. He said, It does people good to be told how highly we value them. There is many a Christian man and woman who would do better if every now and then somebody would just speak a kindly word to them and let them know that they had done well. Let's do unto others. Pastor Steve, could you close us with a word of prayer here?